a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Martin Luther said of this 110th psalm, there is not a psalm like it in the whole scripture, and it ought to be very dear to the church, seeing that it confirms that great article of the faith, Christ sitting at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. That is good enough reason for us to take some time to consider it. You may also be aware that this psalm is one of the most frequently quoted parts of the Old Testament that's quoted by the New Testament writers. Verses 1 and 4, in fact only verses 1 and 4, are quoted in four different chapters of the book of Hebrews, in three of the Gospels, in Acts and Corinthians. If those aren't reasons enough for giving our attention to it, another reason is that we're studying Hebrews in our morning sermon series. And there isn't time when preaching through Hebrews to keep diving off into every Old Testament quotation uh, that is quoted in it. There are so many, even one as important as this. So I hope you'll agree that it's good to study this psalm in its own right, and I hope also that it will complement our Hebrews studies in the mornings. I've said that verses 1 and 4 are much quoted in the New Testament, but the whole of this psalm is, of course, Scripture in its own right, and we'll do well to consider it as a whole, and to expect God to speak to us through all of it. All scripture is God-breathed. Its overall message is that God will, in due time, bring forth a very special king to rule over God's people, who will bring great happiness to his people and great terror to his enemies. It's a message that would have been of great comfort and joy to King David when he was led to write it by the Holy Spirit, and great joy to David's subjects when they heard it and when they sang it. For much of their lives, they were surrounded by very physical enemies not far from their borders, and the knowledge that those enemies would, in the end, be held to account would have been a source of considerable comfort to those first hearers. But Psalm 110 would also have been very puzzling for them. As they heard it or sang it, no doubt, they would have been moved to ask the questions, who and when? Who is this great and mysterious king? The first hearers would have been left straining their eyes towards the distant horizon, longing for a glimpse of this king. The men of faith among them longed to see this prophecy come to pass. This psalm speaks of things that not only they, 
but no doubt also angels at that time longed to understand and to see for themselves. We, of course, are in the privileged position of knowing the answer to the who question as we seek to comprehend how this psalm was received by its first hearers. It's impossible for us to pretend that we do not know that the only king in the history of the world who matches its description and matches it perfectly is Jesus Christ. We're told that quite plainly, not least in the book of Hebrews. But although we know that it speaks of Christ, this psalm is not quite finished with us yet. We, like its first hearers, can only marvel at the description of this coming king. And we, like its first hearers, should still be left longing for his appearance. Yes, Christ has come, but he has promised that he will come again. We sang of his second coming in our opening hymn. This psalm should move us to desire it all the more. Just as it left David's generation longing for Christ's first coming, so it should leave us longing for his return. But to do that, we will need to make sense of the paradoxes that the Holy Spirit has left embedded in this psalm. They would have seemed paradoxical to David. They should still fill us with a sense of wonder, even as we come to comprehend them. There are two paradoxes in particular that we need to comprehend, one in the first half, one in the second. The first is that the coming king would simultaneously be David's junior and David's lord. How can that be? And the second is that this coming king would simultaneously be a war-waging, conquering king and a peacemaking, reconciling priest. How can that be? Taken together, these paradoxes mean that this coming king must simultaneously be David's junior, David's lord, a Davidic king, and a -a one-of-a-kind priest. So let's take them in turn. First, he must simultaneously be David's junior and David's lord. How did David understand his own words when he wrote them down at the prompting and direction of the Holy Spirit? The Lord says to my lord, The first Lord there is Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton, the covenant God of Israel. The second in that first line is the more general term, Avani, my Lord, my Master. Who is this Avani? Who could be the candidates? As King of Israel, there was no living human whom David was required to address as such and certainly no living human who came close to the description that follows in the rest of the psalm. It is true that on a couple of occasions in the past, David had addressed King Saul deferentially as my lord the king, Aphani Hamelech. But both times it was when Saul was pursuing him and David was sparing Saul's life. Both times when Saul was king and David was not. By the time David was king, he would not be addressing Saul in those terms. For one thing, Saul was no more. Our psalm cannot be a backwards-pointing prophecy. It was prophesying one who was to come. Could it then refer to Solomon, David's son? Well, David had, had, of course, a prophecy concerning his descendants from the prophet Nathan. We read of that back in 2 Samuel, chapter 7. And in it, the Lord declares to David... I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, 
and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And that prophecy continues in terms quite similar to Psalm 110. It continues, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Who then would simultaneously be David's junior and David's lord? Not Solomon, but a later descendant of David, a Davidic messianic king whose throne God would establish forever. He certainly didn't do that for Solomon. And that, of course, is exactly how Jesus himself reads this prophecy, as referring to himself when he was challenged, sorry, when he challenged the Pharisees to explain exactly this paradox. It's recorded in all of the synoptic gospels, Matthew 22, Mark 12, Luke 20. Jesus said to them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? In other words, Pharisees, how do you square this paradox? The Pharisees fell silent. They did not want to admit that the resolution of this paradox was standing there in front of them in the flesh. So back to the psalm. God is prophesying through David that he would send forth from Zion, that is Jerusalem, this mighty king. He would be a descendant of David in terms of genealogy, but immeasurably superior to David in his kingship. This mighty king will bring his enemies to heel, quite literally, as God makes them his footstool. These enemies he will shatter and destroy in a day, verse 5. All who follow them, rather than the Lord, will be brought low. That's why we sang those verses from, verse, from Psalm 2. When kings and nations take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed, it is not going to end well for them. If they will not voluntarily bow the knee, they will be broken with a rod of iron. The message is bow the knee to God's king now, rather than waiting to find yourself his footstool in any event. So what impression would these parts of the psalm, the kingly parts of the psalm, as it were, have left upon his first hearers? Surely they would have rejoiced. However much they were besieged by enemies in their day, they were being told that another day had been set when victory would be theirs. A day when God's name would be fully vindicated. A day when there would be no more defiance against God and his king. And at the end of that day, this king would rest from his labors. He would drink and be refreshed from the brook, as it were, verse 7. Having crushed the head of his opponents, that's uh, literally the word there in verse 6, he will shatter chiefs is literally, he will shatter the head, singular. You might see that in a footnote in your Bible. Having crushed the head of his opponents, his own head would be lifted up. The head of his enemy would be crushed. Does that not remind us of the promise 
back in Genesis 3.15, that he shall bruise or crush Satan's head and you shall bruise his heel. Whereas his own head would be exalted. And does that remind us of Philippians chapter 2? God has highly exalted him. It's an expression of successful completion of his mission. The lifting up of his head. If that's what the psalm would have been understood as saying to his first hearers, what do the kingly parts of this psalm say to us? Well, really, they do say much the same as they said to the first hearers, though we, of course, are looking beyond their horizon to the next. Christ has come, but Christ will return. Those who are rejecting him on that day will be vanquished. He will be acknowledged as the mighty judge and ruler, even in the midst of his enemies. John Calvin says, if anyone wants to ask, where is that spirit of meekness and gentleness with which the scripture elsewhere says that he shall be endued with? I answer that as a shepherd is gentle towards his flock, but fierce towards wolves and thieves, in like manner, Christ is kind and gentle towards those who commit themselves to his care. But those who willfully reject his yoke shall feel the terrible power with which he is armed. So said Calvin, it is good that God will not tolerate rebellion forever. It is good that the tens of thousands of Christian martyrs who have been so savagely treated in Nigeria in recent decades and in so many other parts of this world will be brought to justice in the end. If they persist in living as fierce wolves, they will discover that Christ is even fiercer. If we have not laid down our opposition to Christ and submitted to his kingship, then we had better do so without a moment's delay. Let's turn then to the second paradox in these verses, that this coming king will simultaneously be a conquering king, but also a peacemaking, reconciling priest. Why is that a paradox? Is that unusual? Is that unheard of? Well, for Israel, unlike some neighboring nations, kings were not authorized to function as priests to make atonement for the sins of their people. Moses, for example, led God's people as a prophet, not as a king. The office of priest was reserved for the Levites, to Aaron and his family. A bit later, Eli and Samuel served as judges and priests, not kings. King Saul took it upon himself at one point to make priestly offerings. And for that presumption, he was told by God that his kingdom would be taken from him. King Uzziah, one of the few very good kings of Judah, made the same mistake and was immediately made leprous. So the prophecy in verse 4 would have greatly puzzled its first hearers. Clearly, God is doing a new thing here but not a totally new thing. This is where Melchizedek comes in. He was the priest king of Salem, an old name for Jerusalem, in Abraham's time. Notice that this priest comes out of Salem just just as God's king comes out from Zion, another name for Jerusalem, verse 2. And that is no coincidence. Genesis 14 calls Melchizedek king of Salem, 
and Prince of God Most High. As such, he was no ordinary priest, not only because he was also a king, but all the more because he was of a superior and unique order of priesthood. Abraham acknowledged this superiority by paying him tithes. Not only that, the writer to the Hebrews makes much of the fact that there is no recorded beginning or end to Melchizedek's priesthood, as we'll see when we get to Hebrews chapter 7 in the mornings. David's prophecy in Psalm 110 makes these same points. (coughs) This priest-king who is to come would be priest forever, verse 4. And that's then underlined by the words just before that. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Melchizedek, then, was no ordinary priest. The one who would follow in the order of Melchizedek would be a far from ordinary priest. But what is it that this coming priest king will do? We get a hint of it in verse 3, what he will do for God's people. He will give them holy garments. Who wears holy garments? That's H-O-L-Y. The answer would immediately come to the mind of his first hearers, that priests wore holy garments. There are whole chapters of Exodus and Leviticus about priestly robes. But to be dressed in holy garments is also a biblical expression for the justification of a sinner in the sight of God. Isaiah 61, for example, God has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Whereas, says Isaiah, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We need the holy garments that only this priest king can give. We're not on his side if we're not wearing them. Think of the man in the parable who was thrown out of the wedding banquet because he didn't have the the garments of righteousness, the the garments of the wedding. To be one of God's people, we need to be not only rescued by God's king, who comes forth from Zion to defeat our enemies, but also we need to be made holy by the priest king of Salem, who takes away our sins. And of course, the one who comes forth from Zion and from Salem is one and the same person. Who is this person? And when will he appear? The first hearers would have wondered. We have the privilege of knowing precisely who he is and all about his first coming. We know what he is doing today, seated as king at the right hand of God the Father, seated as high priest interceding for his people. We know who he is, But that does not stop us from wondering and marveling at two things. At the way that he was promised and foretold. And at the way that he came in the flesh. And it does not stop us from longing for fulfillment of the promise that he will come again. That day will come. It will be a day of terror for those who are determined to reject him. It will be a day of great remorse and regret for those who come to realize too late that they lack the holy holy garments that only he can give. But it will be a day of great joy 
for all who are dressed in the white garments of those whose names are written in the book of life. That great multitude whose sin-stained clothes have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Revelation 7. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power, we read in verse 3. They certainly will. So to conclude, how does this psalm speak to you? Do you sit there amazed at the genius of the eternal plan of salvation that is unfolded before our eyes? Very succinctly in this psalm, but expansively from one end of scripture to the other. From Genesis 3.15, where the coming of a king is first prophesied, who will crush the head of Satan and all who follow him. To the story of Melchizedek, where this king, this priest king, is first revealed, pointing to a greater Melchizedek, who would come several millennia later. To the prophecy of Nathan, to David, of a Davidic king, David's greater son. To this psalm, where all of these themes are woven together. Seemingly paradoxically, but actually with perfect harmony and consistency, as you would expect if the scripture were, uh, were the product, the, the work of one divine author. Are you amazed at this salvation plan, all the strands of which come together in the first coming of Jesus Christ, who makes righteous all who trust in him, who gathers a willing people, who offer themselves freely to him and in his service? And are you longing for the culmination of this salvation plan when Christ returns, that day of wrath for those who will not call him Lord, but that day of great joy for those who have trusted in his shed blood to make them clean before God and who have followed him as their king? I hope you are looking forward to that day. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, your eternal salvation plan is marvelous, so marvelous it is almost beyond our comprehension. The blessings for those in Christ are so great that we cannot number them. You have shown us the love of Christ, and in response we offer ourselves freely in the service of our great priest and king. May we all be found bowing down before him and longing for his return. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.